Welcome to a healthy bite. You're one nibble closer to a more satisfying way of life, a healthier you, and bite-sized bits of healthy motivation. Now let's dig in on the dish with Rebecca Huff. Today, I am here with author and doctor Cynthia Lee, and we are discussing her new book, Brave New Medicine, and it's called A Doctor's Unconventional Path to Healing Her Autoimmune Illness. And I have to tell you, I was sucked into your book from the first line. It's not just like from a medical standpoint, it's really your personal experience, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, people always ask me like, exactly what do you do? What kind of doctor are you? And I, I start by saying, you know, I'm a human being first. Um, and I don't even like the labels of integrative or functional medicine doctor or conventional or internal medicine doctor. I just say, you know, I'm a doctor really seeking out the most tools that, you know, that I can have to help support my patients in their healing journeys. Um, so absolutely, this this book was um, is really about uh, the paradigm shift that I, I broke open to, like how I was trained um, in a very mainstream medical um, center, which, uh, which I still deeply, deeply hold in great esteem, um, but sort of how the lived experience of illness is very different than how we're trained, you know, with very, um, very controlled studies and trials and uh, very black and white frameworks of how to diagnose disease and how to treat. So, um, but, but it was through my, my own experience of having autoimmune and really complex conditions. And had there been a magic bullet for my conditions, I would, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have wished this journey on anybody. But had, it, had there been an easy way out or a, an easy way to cope, I probably would still be, be using that method. Right. Well, I mean, in the opening of your book, I'm glad that you said what you said just now, because I was like, is this a spoiler if I ask her this question? But you, you already mentioned that you had this autoimmune disease and it is on the cover of the book. But in the opening, you tell a story um, and then you kind of pose this question. If the tests are normal, does disease exist? And I was like, oh my goodness, as I was reading it, and then you're talking about how you were on stage and you were giving this presentation and you were talking about this woman and she had all of these symptoms and it was one of your patients and, and she had all these test results. And of course, you know, they were normal and this and that. And then you talk about it and then you tell who the patient is. Can you tell me a little bit about this patient? Um, yeah, so this patient, um, that I presented as a difficult patient. Um, you know, these patients that I, as a doctor, had really come to dread, um, partly because I had no tools to offer them. And they kept coming back, kept coming back with worsening symptoms, and but their screening tests were normal. Um, uh, and also difficult because, you know, they they have increasing... I mean, rightly so, anxiety and grief, and they're really looking for a solution. Um, and these are the patients that, you know, I feel also like an emotional and sort of existential weight 
in, um, in confronting. So I was feeling increasingly frustrated at this difficult patient and I, you know, and I really revealed that this patient was me. And I was giving this at a, it was a grand rounds presentation to a hospital-wide doctor's luncheon. And, uh, you know, and when I said that, it was very much like you could hear a pin drop. Um, I bet. It was, yeah, because first of all, it was very unexpected. And secondly, um, you know, we don't talk, we as doctors don't, there's sort of this unspoken taboo that you don't really disclose anything personal. Uh, especially if you haven't sort of, it's not something that you could conquer and become the world's expert uh, on. And when I was giving this grand rounds, I was still very much, you know, I, I remember the morning of, I wasn't quite sure I could do it uh, because my symptoms were kind of kicking up. And so I was, I was still very much in the middle of my um, health journey. So at the same time, it was one of the most terrifying things I had done but it was also very liberating and it ended up being one of the uh, pivotal points of just healing because I, had, I realized I had let go of some shame that I had been holding back. So to actually go into the places that scare me and moving through it was then became sort of one of the, the guiding principles uh, I followed to go deeper into into my own closet, so to speak, and release right. my skeletons and facing them. Yeah. You talk a lot about that. The story that you write, you know, this book is very, I, I felt like it was very personal. I felt like I knew you as I was reading it. And you share some um, tragic things that happened to you in your life and some things that, you know, you had to grieve and get through. Um, and then you share about your illness. And I think, uh, it gave me cold chills when I read some parts of it, but I think it's because I know what it's like to be the patient. And I've always thought it would be fascinating to talk to a doctor who understood what it's like to be that patient. And you keep saying, there's, there's clearly something wrong with me. I know this test result doesn't show that there's anything. I know that there's something wrong with me. I've experienced it. My oldest daughter has experienced it. I actually have a Facebook group full of women who have varying chronic illnesses, but it's called Hope Lively. And it's um, a support group for women. And it's just um, to help them keep the hope because so many times when we don't get that diagnosis after seeing doctor after doctor after doctor, and I, I don't know if you experienced this, but I think a lot of us, you know, not being doctors, we're like, maybe it is in my head, but I feel it feels real. I have the symptom, I can see it. But at some point, a lot of us are told that these are psychosomatic symptoms. And I've always wanted to ask a doctor what that's like to see these normal test results. And do you, did you ever start to wonder, is this all in my head? Is there something, what was that oh. like? Absolutely. I mean, I, I knew what I was experiencing, but at the same time, it didn't fit into my paradigm. It didn't fit into my worldview. And, uh, you know, when I started getting uh, the initial symptoms, I was a new mother. I was about three years out of residency. So I was at this place in my work life where I had a sense of mastery. Uh, you know, I was, I knew the, the, the cutting edge studies just pat you know i knew the drills i knew 
um, I felt very confident at my game, if we want to call it that. And so when I began to have these symptoms that didn't fit and my tests were normal, I, I of course, I went straight to questioning myself. Um, okay, wait a minute. This is, this must be all in my head. So I thought it was a lot of, right, motherhood. It, it happened at, this, at so, such a similar time as being a new mother. I thought initially it was postpartum stuff. And then after the postpartum period was over, um, I thought it was, well, I was diagnosed then with a thyroid condition, but the, the autoimmune thyroid condition resolved by numbers, uh, but not by symptoms. So I had thought, even as my symptoms persisted, insomnia, real, you know, exhaustion, and uh, a lot of palpitations, dizziness, but I was still very functional. I lived a very full life. I was very functional. I was used to pushing through, not complaining. And my numbers were normal and I considered myself cured. <laughs> so that tells you a lot about where I was. Like, okay, I must be cured and maybe these symptoms will just take some time to, to resolve. Uh, but they didn't resolve. And so after a trip to Beijing to visit my family, there was a very dramatic incident that then tipped me over into chronic fatigue syndrome and another condition called dysautonomia, which is just a long fancy word for a complete dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system, which is the branch that controls largely unconscious, but very vital bodily functions like blood pressure, heart rate, digestion, body temperature, I mean, sort of the things that we really don't even know our body is doing um, until it, it crashes. And so this left me in a state of perpetual vertigo. Um, my heart rate would shoot up into the you know, 160s, 180s with me just sitting at rest. I always felt like I was on the verge of passing out. A lot of people with these conditions pass out regularly. So it was a very um, anxiety-producing state to be in, and the exhaustion was was really profound as well. I, you know, so for two years I was largely housebound, and it took about two years for me to break out of my paradigm. I mean, that's how deeply entrenched I was uh, in it, and I I put all my faith in it. So it was during this two-year period that I had gone from specialist to specialist and found no answers, but I was really baffling myself. And what happened to me is something that I have seen, you know, just reflected in the eyes of my patients, is this sense of learned helplessness, sort of, you know, deepening helplessness with each sort of punt, right, by, by a specialist. And so I referred myself to a psychiatrist. I mean, I knew that this was where doctors sent patients, you know, when we had no answers, but I, and I think they were merciful on me because, <laughs> because I was a doctor and, oh, well, she's a doctor. She must be sane. We know she's not making it up. Right. I, but I wanted to know, and there was part of me that wanted the diagnosis of depression or anxiety so that I could hang my hat on it. You know, it was better than having no diagnosis. And having no name. But, you know, I left the psychiatrist's office and she said, you don't have a psychiatric condition. You know, I think it's hormonal. You go back to your endocrinologist. And so I, you know, and I, I laughed just, there was, um, it was a merry-go-round and there was nowhere to 
to go, we weren't going anywhere. So I knew I had to get off, but it was not without a lot of resistance. Um, and I literally was just too tired to continue. Oh, yes. I, I mean, I've been there. I mean, uh, some of the diagnosis that, um, for example, I have Epstein-Barr virus. And so that in itself makes you very tired. I've had um, I've tested positive, positive for mold allergies. Um, I've had tested positive for Lyme. I mean, so there's like all these things. And then my older daughter started going through some of the things that you just explained. She would um, start feeling the just like shaking all over and she had all these unexplained symptoms and she went from doctor to doctor to doctor and, and she's still pursuing a diagnosis, mm -hmm. but um, it, it is very interesting to me to hear it from your perspective because I mean, even you'd started to doubt yourself at some point. So that makes me feel better because I, I think a lot of us um, women do wonder, am I depressed? You know, is this in my head? And so we begin to question ourselves. Um, but what are some of the signs? Now, I know you have written extensively about just how to, you know, stay healthy and how to keep the toxins out of your home and all that. Um, but first, I wanted you to um, kind of tell for people that maybe aren't sure, what are some of the signs that you may have an autoimmune disease or this, um, you called it dis Dysautonomia. What are some of the symptoms that we maybe could know? Maybe it isn't depression. Maybe there really is something wrong with me. Yeah. Um, I Let me um, just backtrack a little bit before I answer that question. Is um, The search for a diagnosis can sometimes just really turn into the search for the Holy Grail. I mean, and, and it's actually, it's not a Holy Grail. <laughs> So even if we find the diagnosis, it can be really disappointing. Uh, you know, I, I diagnosed myself in my bathroom when I couldn't stand up uh, without my blood pressure, you know, dropping with chronic fatigue syndrome and dysautonomia. And I, it didn't, it, it actually made me more despairing because number one, there's no good treatment. It's number two, it's poor. Those are very poorly understood conditions. If the, the doctor even believes that they're quote real, and, um, and three, the prognoses for these conditions are, are depressing. Mm -hmm. So to identify with that, those diagnoses was, uh, was very risky um, in, my, in my eyes because it could really kill any hope that I had of, of recovery. So I actually chose to not even... Uh, like it's, it's nowhere in my medical records that I have those things. I think and that's kind of what my daughter did too. Eventually she was like, you know what? I'm just going to start living a healthy lifestyle and doing yeah. all of the things that I can. I don't need a doctor to tell me what I have so that I can move forward. But for right. a while you do, you feel like you have to label it. Right. And that's because of the way um, our, first of all, that, um, that our medical system works, um, but also our culture. I mean, I think it's, you know, we feel if we have a name, right, it gives some kind of validity to, oh, yeah. uh, to what's going on. If we can, right, if there's a form to it, it's not just this formless sort of nebulous experience. And, um, you know, the big turning point for me was, right, was actually going back into basics. Like I, you know, I had nowhere to go. I, um, uh, no specialist was going to fix me. 
And uh, I went back to basics, went into my pathology textbook, and I was reviewing, you know, what's happening at the cellular level, like what's happening in my body. And that's when I learned that diseases are not black and white. Like they're not defined by a set of criteria. They're not defined by a blood test or another diagnostic test. The state of health and disease is really a continuous spectrum. And we know now from uh, data that's been published that diseases often happen years and sometimes decades before a diagnosis can be made. So that was a, a game changer for me because I realized, oh, you know what? The, the common denominator for all chronic diseases is inflammation, regardless of what's causing it. And if I could address inflammation, then it doesn't matter what name I give it. Um, I'm just gonna be uh, addressing how do I reduce inflammation in my body, whether it is autoimmune, like sort of the immune system is creating antibodies against my own tissues. The inflammation damages the cells. If our bodies can't keep up with that sort of, you know, uh, processing what's damaged and trying to repair it, then uh, eventually a diagnosable disease occurs. So back to your question about symptoms, I mean, a lot of the symptoms of, of autoimmunity are, are common symptoms of a lot of other chronic conditions. So it's, you know, it's vague things like fatigue um, or brain fog. You know, I, I can't, I'm not, you know, quite losing my memory, but I'm not sharp. Um, I can't recall things as quickly. Uh, I flip numbers, you know, I, I um, flip phrases, common phrases that I might use. So those are examples, stiffness, generalized stiffness, and I feel a little bit achy. You know, a common thing I had uh, when I was fully functional and quote healthy, like I remember in residency, after uh, these crazy 36 hour call shifts, uh, I would feel dizzy. I mean, like really dizzy, and I would feel uh, lightheaded, and uh, my muscles were really sore. Like I had kind of run a marathon, and you know, in hindsight, after learning what I learned, I realized, my God, you know, my hormone systems, my immune system, my neurological system—like they were already imbalanced. I just assumed everyone else felt that way. I mean, because like, <laughs> who wouldn't feel like they ran a marathon after a 36-hour shift? Um, but, you know, but then my colleagues actually didn't, didn't experience that. So um, I think what we tend to do is because we, you know, nobody likes, you know, a whiner and nobody, you know, it's a very much what doesn't kill you makes you stronger culture. Uh, we tend to minimize that and normalize it. So, oh, you know what, I think it's just normal. Right. Yeah, so we, we come to accept a, a state of suboptimal health as normal. And I see that also with aging, right? We sort of just associate uh, getting older with aches and pains and uh, you know, all sorts of other slowly malfunctioning parts of our body and say, wait a minute, no, 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 that's, that's actually not what, what could happen, right? And probably what ought to happen. So let's, let's begin to um, uncouple 
these associations that we have uh, and, and really demand and give ourselves the chance for optimal health. Yeah, um, you were talking about focusing and swapping the words in your mind or whatever um, that happens. And sometimes I would do the same thing. I'm like, is this part of being, you know, having these things that are going on in my body? Or is this because I'm getting older? Or is this because I have too many things on my plate? But I will do that. And my kids will point it out to me that sometimes I'll say, can you go in there and get that? And then the word's just not there. Like, I know what I want them to go get, but the word just doesn't come to me. So, and I think that is something that a lot of us with chronic illness tend to, we, we want to think, okay, well, that's just because I'm getting older or it's, you know, it's just because I have so much going on. But I do think a lot of it goes back to um, the illness because for me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think a lot of times when I'm not taking as good of care of myself, so maybe I'm not doing turmeric, I'm not doing, um, you know, some of the other supplements, like I do a lot of lauricidin and things like that. Um, maybe just slacking off of taking care of myself, then I feel like I struggle with it a little bit more. So maybe it's not, I don't know. But I think a lot of times we're trying to pinpoint it really, whether it's too many things on our plate, it all kind of goes back to self-care, whether it's too many things on our plate or if it actually is the illness that's causing these symptoms. Bottom line, you know, we still need to take better care of ourselves and do the right. things that we know we're supposed to do. Absolutely. And I mean, to your point, I do, I mean, we, we put significant demands on our, on our minds and our bodies and the multitasking and the digital age and, you know, boom, 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 boom. I mean, you've got six kids, you know, I've got two and, and a very active husband and it's, it's really, really challenging. So regardless, so I said, you know, part of it is, yeah, how do we slow down? How do we internally, right, sort of remember and connect to our bodies, remembering that we are, our bodies still abide by the laws of nature. You know, we are not meant to be operating at this digital pace. And recognizing that instead of fighting it, I remember, you know, a lot of times when I had symptoms, I felt like my body betrayed me, my body betrayed me, you know, as if my body is some kind of vehicle that just carries my spirit and my <laughs> mind wherever they want to go. And they have no boundaries. So it's really about, wait a minute, wait a minute, am I, who, who's betraying who, you know, and, and my body is me. So really beginning to integrate the sense of um, body, mind, and spirit, and recognizing also that the body is basically where the subconscious can be accessed. I mean, we store within the, within ourselves, within the way our DNA is folded, a huge amount of the subconscious. So the symptom of ah, let's just let's just call it brain fog, right, or for forgetfulness. Um, whether it is some mineral imbalance, whether it is you know an omega three deficiency, whether it is an autoimmune flare, whatever uh, you know, an allergen in foods, um, to doing too much, whatever it is, it's a mismatch. And it's the symptoms are really our body's way of telling us, whoa, whoa wait a minute, something is not working and something's got to change. Uh, or else 
I will, um, I will change it. I will demand a change at some point, right? Depending on how we listen or don't listen. Mm -hmm. And so it's really up to us. I mean, that's the hard part of healing. Um, in the old paradigm, or I mean, not the old paradigm, but in the way that I was trained, right? Sort of in the mainstream paradigm, 15, 20 minutes per patient, we, um, we come to both expect on the doctor and the patient side, just a kind of a quick solution, right? We, we want to, what, what can I walk away with now, today? Mm -hmm. um, a prescription that's going to help me feel better. And we need to get away from that and see it as a partnership. So, I, you know, I always tell my patients like you, you are the captain of your ship. And you are your ship, um, and I'm going to help you navigate. So, all right, you know what? You're forgetting things, or you're um, you're scrambling words. Um, I'm going to do some investigating on my part, but then what are you going to do on your part? Right? You're the one living your life, and um, you know, and and it's it's not. It's very rarely as simple as, oh, you know what, you got to remove gluten and, and then everything is fine. <laughs> oh, you know what, you're magnesium deficient. Oh, and everything is fine. It's usually a, um, you know, it's a full catastrophe living sort of. Right. <laughs> and the sooner we can embrace that, that notion of health as being uh, just a way of living rather than like a prescription. I think the the easier um, the path ahead for everybody. Uh, I love that, and along with that, I think one uh, key thing that a lot of people overlook is how important it is to get sleep. So many people skip out on sleep and then wonder why their brain isn't working properly. And I'm like, you really can't function unless you get enough sleep. But I think that's one factor that a lot of people tend to overlook. And I know you talked a bit about insomnia, um, but I had written down another quote from your book that I wanted to talk to you about that I really loved and highlighted. Oh, you said the simplest step in healing is also the hardest believing it is possible. And then you talk about the process, how it often happens with chronic disease, when the illness becomes your identity mm -hmm. and when it becomes all encompassing. Um, and then you go on, I'm not going to read the whole thing because I, I, I hope that everyone goes out and reads this book because it is life changing. But you go on and you say, um, this isn't positive thinking, it's physiology at its best by addressing root causes reducing inflammation, restoring imbalances, and connecting to something greater beyond us, healing happens as a side effect. I love that. Mm -hmm. Can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, I and mean, there are a lot of pieces there. Um, it's, and it's, it's been something I've been really reflecting on as a doctor as well. Um, because, you know, going back to what we were talking about, a diagnosis, um, the way that we're trained with drugs and procedures, everything does hinge on the diagnosis, right? So the protocols um, reflect, but once you have a diagnosis, then you have A, B, or C protocol to follow. Um, without 
fit. Um, you know, we look for some causes, but um, we haven't really been trained to look at, you know, more um, fine-tuned deficiencies or stealth infections or hidden allergens in the way that I learned in integrative and functional medicine. So, um, but what happens with the diagnosis, it's sort of like labeling a child um, a C student. Um, okay, it might be useful in terms of measuring if we're looking at large populations and following trends um, and having some sort of standard, but what happens to that student on the individual level? And as a doctor, what am I doing when I actually diagnose a patient with something? right? Something like chronic fatigue syndrome, um, something like autoimmune thyroid condition. You know, often, well, one of the first things that people do is they get online and they start researching. And it is, first of all, it is, there's so much stuff out there and it's a mixed bag, but what patients really want to know is what, it, what am I likely to expect and what is my prognosis? And a lot of those numbers and the information that's out there is, is not, uh, not encouraging. So we begin to identify with a state of chronic unwellness, even if we are living our lives, but it's like this, this identity that is now sort of hanging over our psyches um, as we live our lives. And so I watch, a lot. I mean, I still have to diagnose for, you know, billing purposes, for documenting my notes, uh, and just as a way of communicating with patients. But I'm very careful about the language. Um, even the, the more testing that we do, more and more testing, we're reinforcing the notion that they're not well. So I've been become over the years a lot more selective. Like, you know, what do I really need to look for? What do I not need to look for? What do they actually need to do stepwise that's gonna be empowering to them as opposed to diminishing sort of their, um, their sense of their capacity for wellness. And so it's a very, very uh, nuanced line, but it's something that, um, that I was so aware of that I became much more aware of when I started writing. Um, when I started writing, I, was, I had never had an intention to publish. And I had always kept a journal and I thought, you know what, why don't I just, and I've always loved reading. So why don't I just start writing? Um, and it allowed me to step outside of my identity of someone who was sick. You know, I was writing about myself, and even though I was writing in the first person, I had to get outside of myself, and I had to actually start thinking, for example, about my husband, right? What was he doing when I was, like, in misery and, like, you know, wanting to uh, just detach from my life and sort of disappear? What was he doing? Oh, my God, you know, he was holding the family together, right? We had two young kids, and he was working, and he was... So it, um, I didn't quite realize how insidious and how strong the identification of me being ill and ill with conditions that had really bad prog prognoses and how that was affecting me. So 
the writing itself was very therapeutic. Um, it was hard to go into the, the harder times, but it was incredibly therapeutic. You know, this was another way of opening that closet and kind of confronting the skeletons and realizing, oh, you know what, they're actually not so scary. And I've been carrying around all this shame. I'm a doctor who has conditions I can't even figure out. Um, and just let them out, you know, give them some sunlight and they're not so scary anymore. And then suddenly, you know, like I have a little bit less inflammation in my body. I mean, the, the, not just the neurons in my brain and my body are changing the way they're connecting, but the way my DNA is expressing itself mm -hmm. is, um, has, has shifted. So the, uh, one of the things that I learned about belief also was, you know, and I, I, I think belief is one of those threads that has been with me since I was young. And uh, I had grown up in an evangelical community in Texas and this, this dualistic notion of heaven and hell really plagued me. You know, how can some people be quote chosen and others are just gonna, the vast majority of the world is just gonna go to hell. And um, I remember as a child being terrified that I was gonna be one of those left behind, that I didn't believe the way that other people in my family and in my church believed. And I was terrified, how do you make yourself believe something that you don't? And so that, that same question plagued me when I was uh, very, very unwell. Like, how do I make myself believe something when I don't believe it? Uh, number one, by the numbers that I see. And number two, uh, by my experience. You know, I've been in this misery for years and I'm supposed to believe really that I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be well. And so it wasn't until I really began um, the practice of Qigong, which is a moving meditation and really integrating mind, body, spirit. And it's using not just movements, very gentle movements like Tai Chi, but um, consciousness, so awareness building, and also sounds. So there's like sound vibrations that are very healing, uh, literally in how they, you know, the body responds to the vibrations. And, uh, but it was through that that I realized, oh, wow, you know what? I don't actually have to believe. Belief is something my left brain is gonna do. It's an analytical thing. Do I, you know, does it make sense to me or not? And the right brain, and when you're really expanding consciousness and intuition, really drops into this realm of visualization. So I had the capacity to visualize myself fully healthy, even if my left brain didn't believe it. And that was really powerful. And I remember the very first time I visualized it and, and brought that visualization into my body. You know, what would it feel like if I were climbing a mountain and I was at the top and, and I was visualizing myself spinning around because I was really feeling strong and it triggered vertigo in me. I mean, I had oh. to brace myself and, you know, whoa, but, but it, it was, um, it reinforced the fact of how potent that was, that my visualization actually triggered vertigo. Wow. And I thought, wow, if it can do that, it can, I can start working with that. So I really began working with it and, uh, and it was, it's hard, it's hard work, but it's significantly easier than believing than making my, my skeptical, uh, other, you know, mind believe that it's possible.
Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I have never been um, good at the power of positive thinking. Um, and since you are familiar with um, the evangelical side of things, you've probably heard the name it and claim it kind of things. Um, so I never was very good at that, but I did have a doctor, um, something that you said before kind of triggered this memory. I had a doctor in Lakeland, Florida, he's long since retired, Dr. Robinson. He always made me believe I was well just by the way he talked to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, you know, he would do tests and stuff and, but he always was like your body, you know, I mean, he just, I don't know, something about the way he talked to me would always make me believe that I was going to be okay. And I had on the opposite side, a doctor, because I traveled to Florida to see this doctor. I had one doctor who would do like an EKG and, oh, he would start freaking out. Oh, I've got to call the nurses in here and we've got to talk to you. You're, you have, um, your EKG isn't normal. You have inverted T waves. And then I'm like convinced I'm going to have a heart attack right on the spot. And, um, and then I go see this doctor in Florida and you're frozen. Oh, there you are. Okay. And then I go see my doctor in Florida and he's, um, he's like, you just had a baby. You have hormones. These inverted T waves often happen with progesterone, you know, fluctuations. And so he completely soothed me. Nothing changed for my physical self, but suddenly I felt healthier. And so yes. I do think that belief has a lot to do with it. And, um, my number five child, when he was born at home, he was 12 pounds. And so I went through this like crazy crunchy phase of my life where I was a raw vegan and I was doing all these things. And so, um, I didn't have an ultrasound with him and I was just going to have my midwife and I didn't know that he was 12 pounds, but miraculously my body was able to handle it. And, um, yeah, I mean, so I think during the time that I was pregnant with him, I did a lot of what you just described is um, I pictured myself, um, you know, just being healthy and giving birth to this healthy baby. And so it really helped me because I honestly don't know if I could have gotten through this. Giving birth to a 12 pound baby at home is not advisable. I don't recommend it. That's incredible. <laughs> Go to the hospital if you're going to have a 12 pound baby. <laughs> but I survived it um, and I healed and everything. But yeah, I do believe completely in the power of your, um, the mind and just the whole mind body connection. And on the flip side, I do believe that when you're filled with bitterness and resentment and anger and all of these things that it can also affect your body negatively. So of course, if, if you can affect it negatively, then there's also the positive side. So I think, um, Right. And I mean, that, that, um, that particular challenge uh, comes up, like a lot of people raise questions about that. Like, how, how do you get from a place of complete despair, which is where I was for a, quite a long time, to these characteristics of resilient people, you know, that, you, that you're bringing up, right? Optimism, calm, sort of this inner confidence, uh, unshakable, uh, sort of steadfast confidence. And um, and I would say that, uh, well, first of all, um, you know, my husband is one of those people and I had a really hard time being around him, you know, so it, it felt, I've never had migraines before, but it, the analogy that I would give is, you know, it felt like someone who has a migraine who can't 
tolerate the sun, right? Or any kind of light. Um, for where I was and how overly sensitive I was to any kind of stimuli and how miserable I felt, um, I could not be around his energy or people like that. Wow. And how do you get from, you know, where I was to where he is? And, um, and it's, it's also annoying. I mean, it's, it's aggravating for people to say, oh, well, you got to be more positive and you got to have, you know, you can't give up hope. And so I sort of got there through the back door. I mean, yeah, I was doing um, Qigong and I was doing a lot of, you know, visualizations and, and such. But the, the way I would say I really got to um, the other side of helplessness to feeling empowered was, uh, yeah, it was through the back door by releasing. So instead of trying to attain a certain state, I just started releasing crap. Um, and, and again, not by some enlightened measure, it was because I was too fatigued. It takes a lot of energy to hold on to fears. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I just got to the place where I was too tired. So, all right, what, okay. I, I got to talk to my mom, right? My parents came to support us. Um, they lived in Beijing. They came to support us uh, at the drop of a hat when I asked. But I had a lot of stuff I, I needed to confront with my mother, you know, just about childhood stuff. And who wants to go there? But you know what? I had no energy. And they, there she was right in my house. And okay, mom, can I just, can we talk about, uh, you know, some of the stuff in my childhood that I remember and not to blame, but just so that you can acknowledge that, you know, some of it was hard for me. And I had these conversations with my mother that I never imagined having. And um, uh, I attended a grief ritual, you know, which I write about too. And I ended up attending a couple of more after that, but uh, I had no idea what to do with grief. And, you know, I had a tremendous uh, loss during my medical, medical school years, right? When my partner died and, uh, is I, it the ring that you're wearing on your necklace? I wondered if you were still wearing it. Cause I read about that in your book. Is uh, that No, I don't, uh, I don't actually have that ring anymore. We ended up, um, yeah, kind of releasing it into the wall. Oh. Um, but, uh, this is a, it actually got replaced by a ring given to me by one of my mentors. Oh, so the, um, but the, in the grief ritual, you know, I just, I learned so much and I learned about how the reason why we fear grief is, well, first of all, nobody likes to go there. Um, but our culture is very obsessed with, uh, you know, being in the light and being peppy and being enthusiastic and again, not being a downer. And yet grief is just a part of, uh, of love. It's a part of being human and our ancestors, used to do these regular soul detoxes. And so we're walking around with a bunch of grief and we fear it because we fear that if we go there, we're gonna go into despair. But it's not the, dis the grief that's the problem, it's that we've privatized it. So we, we grieve privately and yeah, nobody's around supporting us, we're gonna risk despair. Um, so how do we release in a healthy manner where we feel supported? and um, which, which really has made me reflect about doctors because we're confronting people with their greatest fears 
with their deepest griefs. And what we, what, what we're given is generally two choices. We either empathize and we carry their grief or we detach, right? So if we carry too much grief and we're not taught how to process it and to release it, uh, it's going to make us sick. It's going to make us more burned out. If we detach, um, we're coping, we're functioning, um, but it also leads to burnout because when we detach from our patients, we're also detaching from our own humanity. We're detaching from ourselves. So both ways lead to burnout. And everyone's talking about physician burnout, physician burnout. And, oh, how do we, you know, give them more time for leisure and more time for, you know, uh, balance with their family and, you know, and these other measures? How do we reduce administrative duties? But, like, I feel like nobody's talking about the elephant in the exam room, which is this grief. So, uh, and, and that's one of the areas that I've been focusing on with, uh, with doctors in, in large medical centers is this is something we have to begin to talk about. So through my journey, it was really releasing more and more stuff. And when I released the stuff, there was just more spaciousness. And so things like gratitude and you know, gentleness and optimism, those things sort of filled it naturally. Mm-hmm. So it, it was, it became a side effect rather than something I was trying to attain because you, you can't you can't sort of attain those things. Right. It's not something you can actually work for. Right, right. You can't work for it in an and, and obtain it in an authentic manner. Um, because and then you're cramming in more stuff, right? It's more like I should do this, I should do that, which is the the um, antithesis of healing. Right. And my therapist says we're not allowed to should on each other. So not allowed to should on yourself either. So she'll say, stop shooting on me. (laughs) That's good. Well, I just think you have such a good perspective on this and you're in such a position that I feel like, um, it's, it's so wonderful because you have both sides of this perspective from a doctor and as a patient. And so I just thank you so much for sharing with us, for writing this book from such a personal place. And, you know, as you talked about the grief and um, just about the things that you went through in your childhood and how you struggled to even share those with your mom, because you knew what she had gone through. Mm -hmm. I think so many of us can relate to that. And I think your book is going to help a lot of people and I just thank you so much for writing it, for being on my show. Thank you. Thank you. And just, I want to close with, you know, Carl Jung. So, you know, Carl Jung very famously said that our capacity to heal others is directly related to our own self-examination. And so it's, you know, I really see it as a call to doctors and patients. I mean, really human beings, human beings to uh, continue um, self-examination, self-awareness, and we're, we're never done learning. I mean, learning is really, uh, when we stop changing, we stop being alive. And um, how can we venture on into this new era of healing and medicine in a partnership that doesn't you know, blame one side or another? Um, so that's, that's really my hope. And that's thank my you. hope too. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Yes. Words of wisdom. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. And um, I'll make sure that all of the um, links for your book and you have a website, correct? 
Yes, it's CynthiaLeeMD.com and C-Y-N-T-H-I-A, Lee is spelled L-I-M-D.com. Okay, I'll make sure all of the links are in the show notes. So make sure that if you're listening to this, you go and check out the show notes so you can find all of the goods. So thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review so other people can learn about this podcast. Find out more about sleep, hygiene, eating healthy, tasty recipes, zero-waste lifestyle, and lots more on thatorganicmom.com. Help us spread the word. Be blessed and stay healthy.